Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting January 3rd. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, Gordon Smith is going to discuss the lack of any randomized controlled trials to see if parachutes are really effective. We'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. And first up, science journalist Chip Walter on being human. He's an expert. He is a human. Walter's the author of an article in the current issue of Scientific American Mind magazine called Why Why Do We Cry? That article is adapted from his book, Thumbs, Toes, and Tears, and Other Traits That Make Us Human. To find out more about being human, I called Walter at home in Pittsburgh. Hey, Chip, how are you? Great, great. I'm doing well. How are you? Pretty good. Good to talk to you. The basic theme of the book is pretty obvious, but why don't you talk about that a little bit and and also tell us why you decided you wanted to write this book. I, I guess it was really my attempt to try to figure out what makes us tick. Uh, I think I think it got started whenever I was working on a documentary uh, on the evolution of intelligence for uh, PBS, and I thought, well, maybe there. How how could you get your mind around it? And and I began to look at other animals and say, well, there are certain defining traits other animals have. You know, zebras have their stripes, or hammerhead sharks have these wide, weird eyes. Uh, elephants have trunks. You know, and I thought if you looked at those specifics. The specific traits, I'll bet you would learn a lot about how those creatures became the way they are. And so then I thought, well, what about us are unique traits? And so I kept trying to push the questions back, and I came up with these six, you know, defining traits that seem to be entirely unique to us and and they're, they're physical behavioral traits. And the first one is the big toe. Second is our opposable thumbs. Third is our our voices are our pharynx. We have very strange, unique throats with these hundred muscles in them that can make these intricate noises we make. And and then kissing, laughing, and crying. And and so that's what the book kind of takes a close look at that to figure out what makes us tick. And let's talk about crying specifically because part of the book has been adapted into an article for Scientific American Mind in the current issue. Right, and, and yeah, that was a great... Uh, opportunity to get a chance to talk more about that. Crying is, I guess when you think about it, really this very powerful, uh, almost primal form of nonverbal communication. And I don't think we necessarily always think about it that way, but but it has its roots and kind of the hoots and calls of some of our primate ancestors in the jungle, Uh, even like has some connections to the barking of dogs and those sorts of things. Uh, yet we use it and feel it in, uh, you know, highly emotional, personal uh, circumstances. And it's, it's, it's probably one of the most powerful forms of communication there are. And tears are unique to humans? Yes. Uh, and that's real interesting and, and a difficult problem to solve, to understand. But yes, we are the only creature that cries tears of emotion. All animals have uh, that have eyes, you know, have some form of tears that clean their eyes, you know, or if you get poked in the eye, you tear up. Uh, but we're the only ones that actually have water run out of our eyes when we're feeling intense emotion. And one of the interesting things in the article is that the chemical makeup of emotional tears differs from the other kind of tears. Yeah, yeah, that's real interesting. There's a a scientist uh, by the name of William Fry, who's done a lot of research on that. And yes, if you actually were to, you know, poke someone in the eye or, or 
or cut onions and then analyze the tears that they cry when that happens, the chemical makeup is quite different from the chemical makeup and tears that you cry whenever you're, you know, proud of your child or, you know, extremely sad. So that would make you think that the tears are carrying those chemical compounds out of the body, perhaps for some reason, but there's a lot of disagreement about the role of those specific emotional tears. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, Fry has has a theory that, that we're actually crying the, the hormones and the chemicals that make us feel the way we feel to kind of get back to normal. Um, but a lot of other scientists aren't sure that, I mean, if, even if you're having a, a really uh, emotional heaving bout of crying, you're, you're not going to cry out much more than a, you know, a teaspoonful of tears. Or, so there are other theories about why this happens. And another theory is that... Uh, which isn't entirely different, is that it's really the, the autonomic nervous system's way to try to get us back to normal. Uh, we do feel relieved when we cry. Uh, we can be very upset when we start to cry, and kind of the way, the way we might all think about it is, I am crying because I'm really upset or sad or proud. Uh, but in fact, it may be the body's way and the brain's way of saying, okay, wait, you're getting too excited, so... Let's do this thing that will bring you back to normal and and keep you in you know the kind of the Goldilocks zone because if you're upset and uh, and not focused and you're an animal living in the wild that's not a good thing you want to be able to stay you know quote unquote normal and even the little bit of whatever chemical compounds are involved in emotional tears that that get released could be enough to restore your equilibrium. Yeah, it could be. It, that, that's the way William Fry sees it. Others think that maybe that's just a side, you know, that, that just happens to be something that, that you can measure. Uh, obviously, you are, the brain is creating certain hormones, uh, and your body are creating certain hormones whenever you're crying, and that's coming out in the tears. Whether or not you're actually emptying all those hormones out of your body, or the, or the, or the brain just kind of gets the signal and says, oh, okay, let's get back to normal here. You know, it's fascinating. Complex chemistry going on. It's just fascinating that something as as basic as crying is still so poorly understood scientifically. Yeah, it's it's really a big mystery. And actually, I found that to be true with a couple of different things in the book. That these these are things that we take for granted as human behavior, and therefore, in a strange way, they haven't been looked at as closely as you might look at other things that seem more odd or you know extraordinary let's stay with tears for i just wanted to make one other point about something in the article about the study the side-by-side study of photographs where the tears were photoshopped out right right yeah that's that's a work that uh, a scientist named randy cornelius at vassar has done and that was really fascinating uh he spent his whole career studying tears and what he did was he he got pictures, he and his students got pictures of people that were crying and visibly had tears rolling down their cheeks. And then he did a test. He would take those images and let people sit in front of them and and say, well, what do you think these people are feeling? And whenever they saw people, you know, feeling these emotions and with tears rolling down their cheeks, they were very clear that they were sad or they were proud or they were, you know, whatever it was that they seemed to be feeling. But when he photoshopped out the tears, then people had a completely different take. Sometimes they said, well, they're bored or they're awestruck or, you know, they're, they're just uncomfortable or, or something. Some people might even think they were laughing 
because you know your expressions can be similar. So what this tells us is that you know tears evolved and they were extremely useful. They obviously make an extremely powerful statement to others of us when we see tears rolling down someone's cheeks. We know they're really in trouble and they need help. Right. So visible tears may also be a, a big signal, a big communication mechanism. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And we probably need it because we're the most social creature on the planet. And communication is extremely important. And it's important for us to know that whenever someone is really upset, that it's genuine. You know, it's kind of uh, tears become a kind of way to say, hey, I really, really need help or I'm really in trouble. Uh, and if they're not, and, you know, we see this in two-year-olds. I mean, you know, if if they're really crying tears, you go, oh, they're hurt. You know, if if they're not, then you go, oh, they're all right. Right. It's it's more show than actual suffering. Right. Right. Exactly. So that's the uh, the article in Scientific American Mind. Let's go back to the book for a minute. Uh, you yeah. you talked. You briefly mentioned the big toe before. Now the the opposable thumb gets an awful lot of attention, but right. you don't hear the big toe get a lot of credit for making us human. Right, right. Well, I mean, actually, when you think about it, can you imagine any part of the body that's more homely than a toe? You know, big toe, and, and maybe that maybe that's why it's been, you know, kind of kicked to the curb. But the truth is, we probably wouldn't have developed, or let's put it this way, evolution wouldn't have developed and kept opposable thumbs if we hadn't had big toes first. And we did. I mean, we stood upright, and big toes make it possible for us to stand upright. Uh, and if we hadn't stood upright, it wouldn't have freed up our hands to, you know, to make those opposable thumbs possible. So here we have these big knobby, you know, appendages at the end of our feet, and without them, we wouldn't be able to stand up right. And they hold 40% of your weight every time you take a step. And And so just walking would be quite difficult if we didn't have our big toes, if not impossible, and certainly running and jumping and leaping and all the things you see football players do or ballet dancers do would be out of the question. But the interesting thing about it is that once you have a toe that enables you to get upright, it sets all of these other things in motion. Uh, First of all, it changed our sexuality because we were now front-facing, you know, not on all fours. And that got, you know, when you read the book, I mean, there's all sorts of interesting areas that that takes us in. The other thing is that it it enabled our throats or caused our throats to elongate and dropped our voice boxes down so that we can make the sounds that we make, but also so that we're the only primate that actually can choke because we have an epiglottis. We have, you know, the, the passageways between our noses and our mouths meet in one place. That, that's not true of other primates. So there are all sorts of interesting things get set in motion whenever we got upright, and we would never have gotten upright without those those odd toes at the end of our feet. Right. The toes are the beginning of the book, thumbs, toes, and tears. And you got your thumbs, the pharynx, laughter, tears, and kissing are the six uh, six subsections of the book. Chip Walter, thanks very much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Chip Walter's Scientific American Mind article is available at our website, www.siammind.com. Also, check out his website, www.chipwalter.com. Lots of his writing is available there for free. 
Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a woman in Spain has given birth to twins at the age of 57. Story two, adults who live with children eat more fat than adults without children. Story three, competitive surfers suffer fewer injuries than college basketball or soccer players. And story four, more than half the dust supplying minerals to the Brazilian rainforest comes from the African country of Chad. We'll be back with the answer, but first, some research articles become classics and are reprinted and cited often. Such is the case with a 2003 British Medical Journal article by Gordon Smith, head of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Cambridge University, and his co-author Jill Pell. The paper was most recently reprinted in 2006 in the International Journal of Prosthodontics and was cited in September in another British Medical Journal article. The article is called Parachute Use to Prevent Death and major trauma related to gravitational challenge, a systematic review of randomized controlled trials. To find out more, I called Smith at his office at Cambridge University. Professor Smith, great to talk to you today. Uh, good to talk to you, Steve. Now, you and your co-author uh, did a meta-analysis of, of other studies. You, you did not do any original research where you actually jumped out of airplanes either with a parachute or without a parachute, correct? Yes, we, we thought it was wise to review the literature before we committed ourselves to a possibly dangerous course of action. Okay, and you were unable to find, I mean, the, the real finding of your study was you were unable to find any controlled, randomized studies in which you had a test group and a control group where one group jumped out of airplanes with parachutes and one group did not jump out of airplanes or, or jumped out of airplanes without parachutes. So strictly what we were looking for was a placebo parachute. Uh, the person jumping out of the aircraft wore something that looked identical to a parachute. I see. Uh, and they were unaware of whether they'd been allocated to the parachute of the placebo. I see. And now there um, have been some natural experiments where some unfortunate people did have what they thought were parachutes and, and turned out that they weren't. And there have been some some survivors of these and some yeah. not. Did, did, did those come into play in your analysis? Well, we th those were excluded as part of the design of the meta-analysis. So our search criteria... Uh, where we search standard uh, computerized registries of trials, such as the Cochrane database and Medline, uh, the search strategy uh, was, was limited to uh, investigations where there was a control group. Uh, now, there are anecdotal reports of survival following jumping from an aircraft of greater than 30,000 feet, uh, but in the absence of uh, a control group, uh, it's impossible either to assess the safety of the parachute or non-parachute use. I see. So uh, what was the bottom line, then, of, of your findings? Well, the bottom line of our findings was that despite the very widespread use of parachutes, there was no objective evidence to support the fact that they were beneficial. Uh, and then in the discussion of the paper, we elaborated on a number of possible reasons why one might uh, misleadingly feel that parachutes were beneficial when, in fact, this was not the case. So the classic example of this would be what we call the healthy cohort effect. Uh, that when you see people in a non-randomized situation, it might be that those who are wearing parachutes were somehow healthier or had fewer pre-existing what we call comorbidities, uh, and this might explain the apparent uh, better outcome associated with jumping from an aircraft without a parachute. Right. For example, um, economic status is often... Economic status is right. always one. Cigarette smoking would be another. 
Uh, and I suppose given the widespread perception that parachutes are beneficial, it's possible that pre-existing psychiatric morbidity uh, may have been a factor leading to the worse outcomes in non-parachute users. Right. I mean, and if you just talk about economic status, obviously wealthier people could afford parachutes and can yes. also often afford to engage in healthier lifestyles. Yes. Yes. So, so the, the, the apparent better outcome of the parachute could simply be a, be a reflection of, uh, of these the, the non-random variation between the two groups. And that's these are the sorts of issues which underline the importance of randomized controlled trials. Okay, now uh, a lot of our listeners have probably thought that we've both lost our minds, so let's talk about what the what the <laughs> actual point of your publication was. There's evidence-based data and there's observational data, and, and let's talk about the real point of your article now. Yeah, so the real point of the article is that uh, when assessing the likelihood that a medical intervention is beneficial or non-beneficial, uh, the, the current views of evidence-based medicine give a very strict hierarchy. Uh, and I suppose when you get into the sort of most, uh, the, the purists amongst evidence-based medicine, there's uncertainty over any intervention which isn't based around a randomized controlled trial. Uh, and the, the points that we're trying to make, uh, the kind of, first of all, the obvious point is that there are going to be some situations that you simply can't address by a randomized controlled trial. Uh, the second, but maybe a slightly subtler point, was in relation to the detailed discussion. You could conjure up all sorts of possible explanations for why the parachute seemed to be effective, issues like socioeconomic status, issues like pre-existing morbidities. Uh, there would be arguments that couldn't be countered in the absence of direct evidence. But really what we're suggesting was that, uh, that there was no substitute for having a, an element of common sense in this. And in the absence of randomized controlled trial data, uh, you, you really just had to look at sensibly the, the, the observational data. And, and I guess there's sort of an overriding uh, aspect of this is that often deciding on whether a medical intervention is effective or ineffective is a very, very complex question. And addressing very, very complex questions in a simplistic way can lead to absurd results. And I, I guess that's really the fundamental message of our analysis. I, I always think about the, the case of aspirin because, I mean, and there are, there are levels of evidence-based data as well. I mean, it was, you could have the kind of controlled trials that you're talking about with aspirin use, and you would see that it lowered inflammation and decreased pain. But the actual mechanism by which it did that was, was unknown for about the first century of the use of aspirin, I, I believe. Is that right? Yes, I'd absolutely agree. Aspirin, uh, turned out to act through inhibition of an enzyme called cyclooxygenase. Uh, and it's the combined COX-1 and COX-2 inhibitor. But that information has really only been available uh, in the last few decades. I mean, for many years, aspirin was used without knowledge of its mechanism. Uh, I mean, that's, that, that's, a, that's a distinct question in a way in that uh, there's, a, there's the question of whether something can be shown in a trial to be effective, and then having shown that something's effective, understanding the mechanism by which it exerts its effect. Right, right. And the and the studies with aspirin that showed it was effective could be done even if you didn't know how it worked. Yeah, right. and in fact, it's, it's probably true that there's a reasonable number of drugs which are which we know to be effective, where there remains to be uncertainties about the precise mechanism of action. Right. So basically, your your paper was a, was a call to common sense, which is really what science is writ large, mm. I think. A call to common sense and a call not to look at complex questions in a very simplistic way. I think that to me is maybe the key thing. There are other interventions, uh, where there is, where there is uncertainty, much more genuine, obviously genuine uncertainty, which there isn't in the case of a parachute. But if somebody comes to a very complex question with a very simplistic way of addressing it, uh, then they can, the consequence of that can be really quite misleading. 
mm-hmm. uh, and that's the that, that that's the overwhelming message of the paper, the paper for me. Right. We should point out you really did this search in the literature to try to find any trials where people yeah. jumped without airplanes, right? <laughs> it was searching without expectation, though. Right, right. That's academic integrity, though. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Professor Smith, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Steve. Thanks. The full text of Dr. Smith's parachute article is available free at the website of the British Medical Journal. Just go to www.bmj.com and search for articles by Gordon Smith. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, 57-year-old has twins. Story two, adults living with kids eat more fat. Story three, surfing safer than soccer and basketball. And story four, Chad dusts Brazil. Time's up. Story four is true. Some 56% of the nutrient-rich dust feeding the Brazilian rainforest is blown over from a single valley in the country of Chad. For more, check out the January 3rd episode of the Daily Scientific American podcast, 60 Second Science. Story three is true. Competitive surfers have fewer injuries than college soccer or hoops players. That's according to a study in the January issue of the American Journal of Sports Medicine. Not surprisingly, injury rate was correlated with wave height. That's for surfing. Remember, these data are for competitive surfing when conditions are much more controlled than the usual free-for-all at the beach. Drowning is still deemed highly unlikely in soccer and basketball. And story two is true. Adults with kids at home eat the equivalent of a pepperoni pizza's extra fat each week. That's according to research just published in the online edition of the Journal of the American Board of Family Medicine. Now that they know, will adults cut down? By definition... There's a fat chance, all of which means that story one about a 57-year-old woman having twins is totally bogus, because it was, in fact, a 67-year-old woman in Barcelona who gave birth to twins this week after getting IVF treatments. She's the world's oldest new mother on record, and she's resting comfortably, perhaps in the hospital's new combination maternity and geriatric ward. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Scientific American Podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com, and the daily Scientific American Podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Happy New Year. Wear your parachute, and thanks for clicking on us. 